To quote Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And in the case of alternative history, the stories we tell ourselves don't have to be true to be powerful. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Alex E. Harrow. Her latest standalone novel from Red Hook follows three sisters whose fight to bring back witchcraft parallels the women's suffrage movement. Alex and I discuss the power of stories, her method for crafting memorable prose, and weaving witchcraft into an alternative history. Alex and I had a wonderful conversation, which I can't wait to share with you. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Alex. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to make this work. Uh, I loved the 10,000 Doors of January last year, and I'm currently in the middle of the Once and Future Witches and absolutely having a blast. <laughs> it's, a, it's a chunk, so I understand that it takes some time. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, no. Uh, I enjoy chunks. Uh, well, so chunks are great as long as I enjoy them, I should say, and I am definitely enjoying this one. Uh, it doesn't read like it's a five or 600 page book. Yeah, I've been kind of quiet about that on Twitter. I just feel like <laughs> maybe they can't tell in the picture how big it is. I don't want to scare anybody away. <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, most pictures, I think people are distracted by the gorgeous cover art. I know that is uh, Lisa Marie Pompilio Orbit's cover designer. She's done both of them and she just did a phenomenal job. Yeah. Well, uh, something I did want to ask you about is I've seen on Twitter this Southern Gothic bot that you and your brother seem to have created. <laughs> we did. Uh, you know, like some people are putting their time into really productive and good things during this pandemic. They're learning new skills. And uh, I made a useless Twitter bot that tweets every four hours with my brother. So that's, you know, we all are doing our best right now. Basically, what happened is that I was doing research for this next totally secret thing that I'm not keeping very secret. Um, so I was definitely reading a whole not a bunch gothic. Of, yeah, it definitely <laughs> has nothing to do with Southern Gothic. So I was reading a whole bunch of Southern Gothics and trying to get like a, a grip on it as like a genre and an aesthetic. And I got kind of obsessed with its like rules, like on a sentence level. There's a very specific, I don't know, phrasing and evocation that just really feels Southern Gothic. And I just read like Faulkner and McCullers and Morrison and Jemson Ward. And so like I was had it in my head and my brother is a doctoral student at Virginia Tech and he's doing like really important robot stuff. And I was like, hey, do you want to do something really unimportant? So I made the like Mad Libs <laughs> Excel sheet of phrases and words to fill them in. And he built a bot that recombined them and put it on Twitter for me. <laughs> Yeah. And you said there were on Twitter, you said there was something like one E to the 12th or some crazy, ridiculous number of combinations. So it seems like we should be enjoying that for a while. (laughs) I guess you can always say, if nothing else, like if it's a tough writing, it's like, well, you know, I at least uh, had like six or so posts on Twitter that were Southern Gothic. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping eventually it'll just accidentally write my book for me. Sort of a chimpanzees (laughs) of the typewriter situation. Well, uh, I guess looking back a little past that, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Uh, No, because it's sort of a second generation nerd situation. So my mom had Anne McCaffrey and C.J. Shera and Bujold and Star Trek and Zelda, like all of that was in the house already at birth. Uh, And I would just say that it is hard, I think, if you start at a place of like fantasy and high adventure and imagination as a kid, the move toward realist fiction is one that's going to come pretty late in life for you. (laughs) Just like as a middle schooler, it's a very hard sell to go from like Narnia to straight, often sad realism. Like that did not work for me. So I just stayed in the speculative world for a very long time. Yeah, I know uh, for me, like I learned to read on all sorts of like fantastical stuff. There was like uh, Magic School Bus, Magic Treehouse, all these other kinds of stories. And then like I got a little older in school was starting to say, okay, now you're required to read these very depressing literary texts. I was like, ah, but what about the magic? Yeah. And and I was just so spoiled on happy endings for sure. Like that is just a genre expectation that I had. And and I think even the first times you read sort of bittersweet coming of age novels as a kid, you're like, wait, hold on. I'm not sure that this is right at all. Uh, and it's, so it's taken me a while, but I now am a very, a much messier reader and I try to read lots more genres. 
Yeah, that's uh, something I think I should definitely strive for more as a reader. Eh, why? Read what you want. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is always true. Well, a theme that shows up pretty frequently in lots of your writing is the power of stories. So are there any stories that have had a particularly powerful impact on your life? Uh, I just want to preface this by saying that I'm often embarrassed by the fact that it is just like the heart and theme of so much of my writing is like stories are important, guys, and they have power uh, because it feels very like arrogant if you're writing stories to just like have that as your thesis. But I just also really sincerely and cheesily believe in that. Like I wholeheartedly do. I think that stories are like a thing that humans do. And I have come to believe that that comes more from my time in academic history than my time writing fiction, because like so much of analyzing history is analyzing the stories that we are telling about ourselves and how and why those have changed. Like it is narrative making. And so it just feels like that is how we see ourselves and it's important. So. With that preface, uh, important stories in my life. I mean, like I was definitely a girl who grew up in the era of the Disney princess. So fairy tales, like a certain set of fairy tales are always going to have these really deep echoes for me. I will read an infinite number of Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty and Little Mermaid, all of that. I also had a Greek myth phase, pretty hardcore. I, and also I would say like I grew up on retellings in a kind of big way. Like I, I know I read the originals because my mom was a lit major and a nerd, but like in some ways my first brush with like Shakespeare was through the show Gargoyles. So like I'm very in love with retellings in and of themselves. Yeah. And none of this uh, shows up in your writing whatsoever, I'm sure. I am a mystery and an enigma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm hearing you talk about this, and it's one of the few times I feel like uh, a writer like explains like what they love, and I can see direct parallels in so many ways. <laughs> it's it's all there. It's very it's much more personal. Like writing is much more like uh, handing someone like a psychological evaluation of yourself than I ever really expected it to be. <laughs> yeah, well, as someone who's getting ready to have your second book out into the world, that's got to be an interesting experience, that kind of that window into the soul, so to speak. Yeah, it's stressful. I think writers kind of complain a lot about like the pace of publishing because it is very slow, like between announcing a deal and finishing the book and copy edits and all the phases. It's a long time between writing and publishing a book. But I've become increasingly grateful for that like lag because without it, I just feel like you would be like a raw bundle of nerves if you just instantly finish a draft and people read it. I don't know how self-publishers do it. They're geniuses. So I'm really grateful for that. Like it's starting to feel more and more distant from myself already. Yeah. And I can imagine even though there is that sometimes years long process for publication. Uh, it seems like most writers, you know, you're editing one thing, you're writing another thing, you're signing the contracts or working out on another thing and something's getting ready to be published. So it probably doesn't feel super slow, like on any given day. No, it could stand to slow down a little bit more, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a few months ago now, in a video interview with Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore, you mentioned that you once tried to write a secondary world fantasy novel. I was wondering, can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I've had a couple of like abortive, under like 2,000 word starts to novels, but the only actual secondary world fantasy novel I ever wrote was when I was like 12. Uh, I wrote what was essentially Tamora Pierce fan fiction. That okay. was my first book. And it was just, it was awful. Um, and then I've only written one actual complete short story that was fully in a secondary world. And it was really hard. And I am increasingly impressed with secondary world fantasy writers because like every single element of that world is a choice. You're not reflecting reality. You're like inventing reality. In, in ways that obviously reflect reality. I'm not trying to like ignore that. Like nothing is made in a vacuum, but um, I find it so hard and intimidating and impressive. And I, this book is like more of a departure from actual history than I've tried before. And even that I found challenging. Uh, yeah, that was definitely something I noticed uh, reading this book. As I know, with 10,000 Doors of January, you... I, well, okay, I'm not knowledgeable enough on history to know exactly how accurate you are, but it seems like you were very careful with most of the details and getting everything, like, 
correctly lined up into our timeline. Uh, not quite the same with the ones in Future Witches, though. No, yeah, 10,000 Doors, like, the train schedules are correct. Like, not to brag, and I'm sure people can find mistakes in it if they really look, but, like, I invested a lot in the specific historical accuracy of that. Like, every book she is reading is listed in its actual publication date and publisher and place. And, you know, like, it's, it's very specific. And I wanted it to feel like magic was leaking into the actual historical world. Like, these doors would just fit into the narrative and sort of explain parts of history, but not change history necessarily. But then with Once and Future Witches, I thought I at first in the early drafts that I was going to, like, keep it strictly accurate to the history of the American women's suffrage movement. And that just completely did not work at all. Like, uh, in part, I think it's because the American women's suffrage movement is huge and diffuse and happened over like two centuries and was fractured in a lot of ways and involved movements as far apart as like anti-lynching laws in the South and temperance laws and prohibition. And like, there was no neat or effective way to make all of that fit into one book-sized thing, unless I took the stakes unbelievably small and it became like a small group of women fighting for one ordinance in one city in one year. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So I, at some point, the decision to just let myself totally depart from our historical narrative and have witchcraft be an explicit part of the history that changed a whole, whole bunch of things made it way more fun and way more possible to sort of talk about the big pieces of women's history and actually the history of witchcraft too in a condensed time and place in this imaginary city called New Salem. So it was solving my narrative problems mostly. <laughs> and I mean, it kind of adds like this magical, almost like fairy tale-esque feel to it as well. Because you can definitely see like where there are departures. You're like, oh, this is this is something else. I can recognize the real world in it, but it's not necessarily the real world. Yeah, my little rule in my head became that quote that's like, history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. I tried to make it rhyme. So like everything is a reference to something that really happened. I just didn't care where or when it, that thing specifically happened. Like if I want the Pullman labor strike to be in 1893, boom, it is. Okay. And it's like all these things were able to like converge. Right. And I, as someone who is only somewhat late in life, kind of appreciating history more, uh, the dates in the specific years and all of that doesn't seem to be anywhere near as important as like the reasons why things happened and the people who were involved and what they wanted from it. Uh, and I definitely feel like you keep the heart of that. Because, because history is narratives. History is storytelling. What did I say, Travis? <laughs> ah, bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> um, well, uh, speaking of storytelling and like sort of the nitty gritty of how you actually tell it, I know like one of the more striking things about your writing style is the prose itself. So how do you approach crafting your prose? Uh, so I saw this question on the list and like the only thing that I thought in my head was the Princess Bride guy saying to the pain. Um, so <laughs> the real answer is just very slowly. I'm not a fast writer. Um, I lean really heavily on metaphor and simile, obviously, but I have like this, I've grown up this like set of rules around them that makes them increasingly slow and difficult to write. And this is so silly. I've done this to myself. Um, but it started with like Orwell's, you know, he has like six rules for writing and I know people hate rules for writing, but I, I always found his helpful. And in particular, he has that one where he says, don't write it. Don't write something you've heard before. So like something being sharp as glass or something, I can't write that because it's been used before and that's boring. Um, so I started there and then I added that it has to just ring true on like a gut level, the metaphor does. And it has to sound nice. Like it has to have a nice rhythm when you read it out loud. And then the most important rule that I've added on that really bogs me down is that the metaphor has to somehow like tell you something about the world or the character. Like it can't just exist because it sounds pretty. Um, and most of my redrafting is cutting all the ones that just sound pretty and don't tell you anything. So it's slow, mostly, is my answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, I guess my follow-up question to that would be, is this something that like you're consciously thinking about as you're writing out every sentence in the drafting phase for the first time? Or is this, get it out on the page, then come back and massage that prose to fit all these rules afterwards? 
Boy, I wish it was the second one. It should be the second <laughs> one. I am working on just drafting and like, and and just like writing the story and, and letting the prose fair fall kind of where it will. But I tend to really polish things as I go. It just like my natural state is definitely like to do several drafts at once, you know, like I move very slowly through that first draft, but the first draft is right. maybe a little further along than other people's first drafts are. Um, it's not the best system. I don't defend it. It's just where I'm at. Well, I mean, the best system for any writer always seems to be the system that works for that specific writer. Yeah. And even the specific book, like each book feels like it's going differently right now. Yeah. I guess something I hear a lot from writers is you never really learn how to write so much as you learn how to write the book you're writing. Yeah, that's a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I guess if nothing else, it prevents complacency, maybe. So you're always trying to push your boundaries. It's exciting. It is exciting. Yes. Well, I guess taking things back a little before uh, The Once and Future Witches, what's the story of how you sold your first book, which I believe was The 10,000 Doors of January, unless I'm really off here. No, that's right. Yeah, that's my the first book I've written, except for that Tamora Pierce knockoff in middle school. Um, <laughs> so this is a pretty annoying story. And this is, I think when I signed my agent, she was like, never tell the story at writers conferences because they'll just all hate you. And I think that's fair and solid. So I had been trying to experiment with writing short fiction pretty explicitly as like trying to practice prose in order to get good enough to write a book. So I had a few short stories out. I published one called A Witch's Guide to Escape in Apex Magazine. And it went around Twitter a little bit and I got a DM from an editor and an agent. (laughs) And they were both like, hey, you don't happen to have like a novel, do you? And I was like, give me a week to finish the revisions that I have planned for the 10,000 doors. And I would love to send it to you. And I did. And those two people are my current agent and my editor. Uh, and I signed a two book deal. So that's really obnoxious because that skips a lot of the steps of that writers go through, mostly querying in particular and sending it out to different houses. So really lucky was how I sold my first book. Yeah. Although I will say, I don't know if I've heard like a writer's story about how they got their first book out into the world that doesn't come with a caveat at the beginning. Like this is not the normal story. Like everyone seems to have their own different path. That's true. And luck is just a part of every one of those stories. Like a lot more people have a lot more labor and talent and dedication and stuff like that. But like eventually there's an element of luck. Right. But the luck doesn't do anything without all of that labor and talent in the first place. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well so uh, what interested me about a witch's guide to escape is it kind of feels like the seed for both the Ten Thousand doors of january and the once in future witches all in one right you've got like books as portals to other worlds but you've got a witchy librarian at the same time so was this kind of the foundation for those other stories uh and if not what was um so I am at the point where I no longer know what the actual genesis of 10,000 Doors was. I mean, it, it's it's just like too deep in my DNA of like girl finding a magic tour and, and finding other worlds. Like that's, that story is written really deep in my back brain uh, so that when I sat down at some point and was like, I want to try, I'm just going to start writing a novel. I wrote the first five pages of 10,000 Doors and they're pretty much the same. So don't really know where that one came from, except for everything I'd read before. Uh, and I actually wrote a witch's guide to escape like during, I think, the second or third draft of 10,000 Doors. So it came after. But what I think is kind of funny is when I look back at my work, you can sort of see each idea hopscotching like from the last one. So 10,000 Doors ca- kind of gave me this like interest in portal fantasy as a specific trope. And then that gave me a witch's guide to escape. And then that kind of led me to witches. <laughs> and then <laughs> once in future witches. Uh, and then there's rewritten fairy tales inside Once in Future Witches. And the next thing I have coming out is a tour novella that's a Sleeping Beauty retelling. So it all is very clear when I look back, like what my the moments that my little back brain was like, oh, hey, I liked that. Yeah. Now I'm just trying to uh, see where the gothic influences came in from some of these books. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I haven't even put it together yet. I can only see these things in retrospect. I have to write the next thing. And then I'm like, well, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah, I'd say hindsight is twenty twenty, but twenty twenty has kind of become like a bad word in yeah, my we vocabulary. Don't say that. We don't say that anymore. <laughs> Well, so you said that 10,000 Doors of January kind of uh, developed that interest in Portal Fantasy, but it kind of seems like maybe it came a little earlier because I believe part of your studies in grad school was in Portal Fantasy or at least uh, Victorian kids lit. So my nostalgic side is kind of already bracing for this answer. But after that grad school thesis, uh, do you have any thoughts on how race and gender are portrayed in children's literature? This is like the kind of question that like somebody could casually ask me at like a party and then they'd end up like with their back against the wall being like, please stop having thoughts and feelings about this. Here, let me just slide over this soapbox in your direction. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so basically I wrote my thesis on portrayals of race and gender and empire in British children's literature in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, which was really me taking aim at like a lot of the stories that I grew up with and and a lot of the stories that were the roots of the genres that I love. So adventure stories and portal fantasies are definitely something that come out of that era of literature, um, which I deeply love slash loved. Um, and basically my conclusion was that kids lit, maybe especially, but not exclusively in that moment, was really about communicating and enforcing power structures and turning like the empire and the imperial project, which was in reality, diverse, fractious, rebellious, unknowable, challenging. They turned it into something quaint and orderly that even a child could explore and have safe adventures in. So you think about like Dr. Doolittle or Tarzan or Narnia or everything Valentine or G.A. Henty wrote, Treasure Island, all of those were in some ways part of making the empire into a fun, imaginative kids playground instead of like, you know, a world they were conquering. So I, I, have a lot of emotions about particularly portal fantasies, but a lot of kind of kids adventure stories are really predicated on some of the tropes that were invented during that era. And they, I think can be subverted, useful, subverted in useful and cool ways, but are always present and always have to be dealt with. All right. I'm going to climb down off the box now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, again, with the whole power of stories, like it's not always used for a good means. No, it's often not. It's often not like that's how we construct things like nationalism. That's how things like like we talk kind of loosely about like racism or white supremacy. But these things are like maintained largely through the stories that we tell about ourselves in things that seem, you know, innocent or casual or fun. Like those are not <laughs> like the stories we tell are actually important and reflective and and constructive. Like they don't just reflect, they build who we are. So I'm actually, I needed to borrow the box for another little second there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, well, we've, we've kind of already talked about it some, but do you have like a polished pitch for the Once and Future Witches? No, but I have the same pitch that I sold it on, which was, okay, suffragists, but witches. That's it. That's the whole pitch. <laughs> uh, I feel like that needs like a, a gif to accompany it or something. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, no, it's it's it doesn't really I don't know that you need to know more than that. Like if that piques your interest, then that's the direction it goes in. But basically, it's like three sisters who are in an alternate version of the American women's movement, and they are turning the women's movement into kind of a witches movement. Right. And so that feels so much not easier, but simpler to describe than the 10,000 Doors of January. I know at least I've used the phrase suffragettes, but witches quite a bit when recommending this book to others. Uh, but 10,000 Doors was more cornering people into an impromptu TED talk. <laughs> that is definitely how I felt. People would be like, what's it about? And I'd be like, well, you know, it's like, I feel like there's a couple, there's a book within a book. And then there's like, <laughs> it was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, how difficult was it to come up with the title for The Once and Future Witches? Because it feels like, I don't know, there's been more and more books about witches in the last year or so. Yeah, it was a nightmare, actually. 10,000 Doors, I had it titled The 10,000 Doors in my drafts from the beginning. And all we did in publishing was add of January onto it. Um, and this one... Oh, what was it originally called? I think my original title was A Conflagration of Witches, which I still like, but a number of people were like, conflagration is not an easy word and not everyone knows it. And I was like, that's fair, I guess. But like, they're burning, get it, witches? And the people were like, no, stop. Um, so it was really hard. And we went through 
literally hundreds of possible titles. Like me and my agent and my editor were just sending each other bulleted lists, long, long lists of possible titles. And we'd send them back with like, I hate all of these, but I like these too. And then we'd finally settle on one and we'd look it up and it'd be like, that one is taken actually. Because uh, <laughs> there are a bunch of witch books, it turns out. Um, and there's actually a scene, there's now a scene at the end of Once and Future Witches where certain characters are trying to come up with a name for their book. And in that dialogue, I use like half a dozen of our own rejected titles as a joke for my editor. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But yeah, so the title, like, it's the kind of thing where I feel like, I don't know if you experienced this, but once like you hear it and then you see it applied to the story, it seems like it couldn't have been anything else. So I, I know at least like in the beginning, there's that phrase, there's no such thing as witches, but there will be. That seems like it kind of naturally follows on from the title. I don't know if the title was first before that phrase or no, the other way around. the phrase was first. The phrase was first. And I am the one who finally came, to, <laughs> just to take credit for my agent, my editor, I'm sorry. But I did come up with the Once and Future Wishes. And it suddenly, because there was already this like little strain of Arthurian references in the book. And so like Once and Future Wishes, I was like, oh my God, I just realized what the stupid, well, you have, I don't want to spoil my own book, but it's like a thing that is explained by being the once and future, which is that made sense within the mythology of the world. I was like, I have to do this. My editor was a little bit like, well, people think this is like a King Arthur retelling. And I was like, I do not care. This is the right title. <laughs> and I think just out of exhaustion, she came in. I was like, well, at least it's not conflagration. Right, exactly. Be grateful. Be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you did mention that you did a good bit of research for this book, even if you were kind of rearranging the dates and putting your own spin on it. Was there anything particularly interesting or surprising that you learned while you were doing that? Um, there were a lot of kind of coincidental things that were really fun and helpful, like probably because the history of women's movements and of witchcraft are so huge and sprawling. If I needed a historical detail, there was always something real there for me to pull on. So at some point I, there's a plot significant piece of embroidery, like a children's sewing sampler that needed to be on the wall and blah, 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 blah. And I Googled it. And there's one like literally from Salem that has like very creepy little animals on the corners. It is a very haunted looking children's sampler from Salem. And I was like, perfect. Great. That's in the book now. <laughs> that's awesome. That is not the kind of thing that I ever would have picked up on being like actually from the real world. Yeah, no, it is. You should Google it. It's definitely like you're like, that kid wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, uh, the Once in Future Witches features a very diverse cast of characters. So how did you approach writing outside your experience and using historically accurate language that maybe holds a different meaning in modern times? Yeah, so this is like a huge question in some ways, because the thing is that I, I don't, I will not say that I fully realized when I first set out to write this book is that when you are writing something like a women's movement and not just like the stories of a couple of women in a historical time period, who is involved in that story becomes instantly super political and really important because like the women's movement is maybe one of the most whitewashed narratives we have in American history. Like we, we kind of present it as if it's mostly respectable white ladies who are like linking their elbows and, and getting the vote in 1920. And when really much of the riskiest activism is being do, done by like black women and queer women and women of color. And I wanted a picture of the women's movement that didn't erase the racist and classist and divided nature of it but also didn't deny the presence and work and participation of marginalized women. And that is a really hard thing to do. And that was one of the things that was made easier by throwing out our real historical timeline. So what I tried to do was build a world where witchcraft had existed and sort of still did, which meant that women of all cultural backgrounds would have had or still had a version. They're like their own version of witchcraft, like their own avenues to get to this same fundamental power. And like, I let the, I let that decision kind of in shape a whole bunch of the world. So it's not really, it's kind of just mentioned in the margins, but basically the idea is that like the colonial projects of the 19th century were super slowed down because like people have magic. So Western expansion in the U S is like stalled and the French are having trouble in West Africa and Egypt remained independent for like way longer than it actually did and became like a symbol 
of Black witchcraft and independence that had resonance among like African-American witchcraft practices. So it was like a way overthought and ornate thing. And it ended with me having lots of different kinds of women and cultures to write. And my approach was basically do my own reading and research for a while, then go to sensitivity readers. And then my editor, um, who is actually the only black editor in all of sci-fi and fantasy at the big five. So yikes there, um, had really crucial extra insights for specifically the black experience and, and, and those discussions of terminology that you mentioned. So like in the first draft, I had tiptoed around the word colored almost entirely. Like it wasn't there, but like the word black was absolutely not in common usage. Uh, it's a hyper-racialized era, and most of the Black activists of that era organized under the term colored. So like the National Association of Colored Women, uh, I became the New Salem Association of Colored Women in the book. Um, so I tried to use it sparingly, but accurately, and without the sort of um, like invisible, anxious, white hand-wringing in the background about it. I just tried to use it the way it was. Right. Yeah, it, it did at least as uh, a very uh, privileged uh, white perspective coming from my own perspective. Uh, it seemed like you handled it carefully. Uh, so I definitely appreciated that as a reader. But again, I am also saying that as a white person. <laughs> like, I don't want to say that I got everything 100% right, but I will say that I didn't do it any of it casually. There were intentional decisions made, and I, I hope that those end up landing well with readers. But it is, of course, up to everyone to make up their minds about that. Right. Um, and speaking of your editor, I did hear that your edit letter was particularly intense for the Once in Future Witches, something like 12 pages single spaced or something like that. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Resulting in uh, rather extensive rewrites and maybe uh, tens of thousands of more words added to the first draft. Uh, so what changed during those rewrites and how did you approach tackling all of that? Yeah. So I do want to preface this by saying like, if you ever have the chance to work with Nivea Evans at, at, at Orbit, she is like a genius and she's super, super, super great. And everyone, every writer that I know who has worked with her is very much like her feedback will be intense, but it will be so shaped towards like making the book closer to the book you had in your head. Like she has a really good sense for that. So I am ultimately extremely grateful for getting a 12 page single spaced edit letter, which included the phrase, we think you have a really great start which is just devastating. <laughs> Absolutely devastating. Um, but so it's kind of hard to imagine, but that like 500 and something pages, whatever, don't worry about it, was like 40 or 50,000 words shorter, but kind of had exactly the same amount of plot and characters. And so it was terrible. <laughs> like nothing had a chance to breathe. No one felt any repercussions. Everything was just incredibly rushed. It was like a mattress stuffed in a pillowcase. Like it just, I had this very specific word count in my head and I refused to let my chapters go long and add extra chapters. And it just kind of marched along like clockwork to my outline, which is kind of how I liked ideally to work. And it was super forced and it was kind of hard to write. And I didn't feel as much as I emotionally wanted to feel, nor did I get to see as much of the world as I wanted to see. Like all the cool shit was like in the footnotes. I mean, there aren't footnotes literally in this one. I realize I've done that in the past, but it was in the metaphorical footnotes, you know, like in the first draft, uh, I think one of her comments in the edit letter was like, you can't just mention a night market full of witchcraft and not let us see the night market full of witchcraft. What are you doing? Um, and so like the rewrite process was really like starting over at the beginning, except I pictured myself with no rules and let it go as wild as it wanted. I did not intend to add as many words as I did. I actually messed up the word counter on my Scrivener. So I had no idea it had gotten that long until I compiled <laughs> it into a word document and like attached it to the email to send to my agent. And I was like, I'm so sorry, guys. I didn't know. <laughs> uh, but I think for the kind of the bigness and the messiness of the story that it ended up being like it, this is the link that needed to be, I guess. I swear to God, I'm not going to be one of those writers who writes it and adds like an extra hundred pages on each book they publish. That's not it. <laughs> I mean, you can do what's the new thing. You just end up like writing a book so big, you just split it into two volumes. Ugh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, so one thing that you said before that really stands out to me is that fantasy has the power to make metaphors literal. And this is prevalent, it feels like, in both of your books so far. So how do you balance using like the metaphorical and the magical to highlight a real-world issue with letting the fantastical elements sort of overpower the message that you want the reader to take away? Yeah, um, I like this question, but it interests me because I really don't, I've never thought about it before. And I think that's because in my head, like, I am just not sure that I see those, the fantastical and the literal message as separate. Like, ideally, there's no separation between the story and the message. The story is the message. And I am definitely one of those people who sees, like, I think it is extremely false to imagine that you are reading a story that doesn't carry at least subliminal messaging with it. Like, that's what stories are. So I, I think that's the same with the magic in the story. Like in the 10,000 doors, the magic doors are a literal escape from this world that makes them about escapism and nothing I can do could change that. And the same in this one, like witchcraft is a manifestation of women's literal power. So there's no place I could take it where it wasn't. So it's, it's not something I thought about at all. And maybe that makes some of my writing feel sort of heavy handed. And I think one of my reviews so far for Once in Future Witches said, but really, isn't subtlety overrated? And I was like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, what I'm thinking about, it, it's less prevalent to me with uh, the Once and Future Witches, because like you're saying, the like literal magic and the women's power, they're very closely intertwined. Uh, with the 10,000 Doors of January, uh, did you ever like struggle with, uh, are readers going to take this away as like prescriptive versus descriptive magic? Like, are the doors literally giving people the ideas to then change the world? Or is that sort of symbolically showing that an idea to change the world is magic in itself? Okay. So like, I think there's that old piece of writing advice that basically says like, it's an iceberg and you should only show readers the top 10%. Right. Uh, and you don't want to be overly descriptive and prescriptive and you don't want to like tell them what the story is about. But I like, I do want to tell them <laughs> uh, like, like I that's how I like stories like I like them to have this heavy element of like narrative voice and very much like here's what happened and this is what it means and here's why I kind of like things laid out for me I don't want to do all that work of figuring out the message on my own uh, so I'm sure some people bounce off of that but like it's uh, not for them <laughs> yeah and I mean no story is ever going to be for everyone yeah. Speaking of types of stories that are for people, what exactly do you find so appealing about fairy tales? Oh, so much. I mean, like, especially when you take fairy tales to mean like the kind of classic Western sense of fairy tales, like Grimm's and Perot and all that. I just, they're really awful. They're often deeply like problematic would be the trendy term, but they have like, they reflect some really old and ugly visions of like women and their agency and power and it's they're bad but I love them so much um and one of the things I like about them is that they're sort of like these shorthand stories that everyone knows and it makes it feel like we all have we have this interesting sort of common language that is very surprising given that like the Grimm's is just a particular set of transcriptions of oral German folklore in a moment in time. It's really interesting to me that like Disney is remaking those and giving a whole new generation the same sets of shorthand to talk about it. I just think that's so cool. So like you were saying before, uh, this definitely shows up in The Once in Future Witches, where you gender flip a lot of famous writers. So I know it's like the Sisters Grimm instead <laughs> of the Brothers Grimm, uh, and quite a few other writers as well. I'm just nowhere near well-read enough to pick up on all of them. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of in-jokes. Uh, yeah, I'm so sorry for the number of references in this book. Yeah, I did that because once I decided that like witchcraft had, like the witch burnings were real and witchcraft had been burned out, but women had managed to sort of like pass down particular words and spells through seemingly innocuous things like stories and folklore and nursery rhymes and songs. Then it made sense to me that, that historically the people who were interested in things like children's stories and songs and nursery rhymes might've tended to be more women than men. So I just like flipped a whole lot of the early folklorists and fairy tale collectors and translators and stuff like that to make them women <laughs> because I could and it was fun also. <laughs> yeah, again with the whole uh, power of stories thing. 
and I actually saw on Twitter last night, I think, uh, someone was mentioning that they don't think that the Once in Future Witches actually passes the anti-Bechdel test, uh, <laughs> which is fascinating. I don't think there are two named male characters that have a conversation with each other. And if they do, it's certainly not a conversation that is like that conversation would be about women. <laughs> like it would fail there. Yeah, I don't think it does either. I saw that last night and it was like, huh, all the male characters are pretty much like tertiary to these women's interests and, and like exist as satellites of them. So I'm not sorry, but I think that's interesting. <laughs> 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 no, that's absolutely not something to be sorry about. I would like wear that like a badge of honor. That's awesome. And so I also want to say, I want to say it was you. I don't know if it was on Twitter or if it was like uh, an online ask me anything that you did a while back where you compared uh, fairy tales to like our modern day superhero stories that you see, where it's sort of like the cultural shorthand of like mm -hmm. everyone probably recognizes Spider-Man to a certain extent or Superman or Batman. Uh, and there's a million movies out there and they've been rebooted a hundred times, which is kind of that whole fairy tale feel where everyone's aware of them and there's been a million versions. Yes, I love that so much. I mean, I am not going to say, like, I'm sure way smarter people have said this a million times, but for me, it was sitting in Spider-Verse, which is a perfect movie, flawless in every way. And realizing that it was like a Spider-Man retelling that both loved Spider-Man very deeply, but also like knew it had been retold 8,000 times and wanted to almost like demonstrate and honor that in some way, you know, like the, each the historical comic book issues moving through basically the entire history of comics was, that was amazing. I loved that so much in that movie. And literally as soon as we left that theater, I was like, oh my God, Nick, that's my husband. I just really want to do that to a fairy tale, like a, a retelling that was self-aware and knew about all the other fan, uh, all the other fairy tale retellings. Like that's so great. Yeah. And can I just say that, like, I love so, so much that Spider-Verse has become a verb now where you can Spider-Verse a fairy tale. Yeah, I made it a verb. It's a verb in the novella, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, on the note of that novella, just how much fun was it to write a spindle splintered? Uh, Spider-Versing a fairy tale just seems fantastic. It was awesome. It was the most fun I have ever had, maybe since I wrote that Witch's Guide short story, which was also very fun. It was just like... I got to have a narrator who's like genre aware. She's a folklore major. And then she gets to like dimension hop into other versions of her own story. That's so fun. And she gets to like text her best friend the whole time. So I got to have like more of my existence in online culture be present in my writing rather than like, I mean, it always is, but like textually present, there gets to be memes. There gets to be jokes. It was like, it was deeply fun. <laughs> so much fun <laughs> I, I hope you're ready for like the endless barrage of meme reviews that come out for those novellas because that only feels oh, appropriate yeah yeah that feels right <laughs> that feels right and i mean thank god for tamsin muir showing every writer that it was totally fine to have your own personal language and like shorthand for things to be in your books like Gideon the Ninth is built on memes. And so I put like one very obvious meme in this novella and I feel very much like I should salute her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. I am 100% here for that. Uh, and <laughs> I, I did suspect that you were a fan of uh, Gideon the Ninth and Hero the Ninth as well, given that I think, is your Twitter handle actually still Alex Hero the Ninth? It just changed. It. Okay. <laughs> I just finished my reread of Hero the Ninth. So that's my second time through. Yeah, they're great, man. They're so, I think the first time through, it was such a new world to me. And I don't think I have a lot of the um, shared like media that it's coming from. Like I never read Homestuck or, and I don't watch anime. So I think there was a lot of things it was pulling from that I was like, wow, this is all brand new to me. So the first time through, it was more work to figure out what the hell is going on in those books. And the second time through, it was like purely fun. It's fantastic. Are you a fan? Uh, absolutely a fan, yeah. Okay. And I, I will say I came from the same reference point as you where I didn't have a lot of that cultural background to pick up on what she was doing. Uh, so I finished it. I was like, wow, like, I felt like, you know, there was that one meme in the whole book in Gideon the Ninth, and now in Harrow there's nothing. And people are like, what are you talking about? That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I did get more of the memes, but even just like the world building and the like the magic system, like when I told my little brothers about that book, he was like, oh, yeah, like every anime has this like obscene, like intense 
body modification thing where you can control your flesh and bones. Like that's not new. And I was like, oh, well, it's uh, struck. it was interesting to me. Yep, that's the first time I encountered it. <laughs> right, exactly. It, to me, it felt like reading a novel length fan fiction for a movie that I had never seen, but I was into it. And like, now I feel like I have a better grasp of like all the houses and the characters and I have elaborate theories on the world building and why it is the way it is. So we'll have to see till the third one comes out if I'm right. Yes, I have uh, quite a few theories as well. And I, I suspect at least a couple of them are right. But when you have like 30 theories about something, you're bound to get something right. I know. And then I get to be like, I knew it when it comes down. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, bring the focus back a little bit to your own work. Uh, sorry for that tangent, but can you tell us anything about uh, your upcoming Kentucky Gothic novel? I know uh, there's probably not a lot of details you can share. Yeah, I can't. Not really. I'm not supposed to. Uh, it is. I can just say that it is the most me thing that I've ever written. Like it's sort of a not that I have much to pull from, but it's the greatest hits. But uh, it is. It's also. I will also say it is the reason that I've been reading not only a lot of gothic novels, but a lot of romance novels. And it's ah. super fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I know at least just between like learning that you live in a formerly abandoned house in Kentucky and you helped write the Southern Gothic bot, this kind of feels like a perfect fit. Yeah, it's really, really, really fun. It's very exciting. Uh, well, you mentioned reading some romance and some gothic novels. Uh, it doesn't have to be in those genres specifically, but are there any books you've enjoyed lately and you can recommend? Oh my gosh, there's so many. That has been how I totally understand that people are having a hard time focusing and reading during the pandemic. But books are like the boat that is getting me through this right now. Uh, so I've been reading a lot and I actually divided my lists into gothic and romance for you. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so on the gothic side, obviously Mexican gothic is great. It is so fun. There's a reason it's spent like, what, nine weeks now on the New York Times list. Uh, it's it's weird and unsettling and this kind of horror-y, but it has just a beautiful aesthetic. So definitely that one. Catherine House is another one, and I'm totally blanking on the author's name, but it was like so atmospheric and spooky, and it's a big rotting house school story, so that's great. Uh, kind of the slightly older Gothic that I just think is maybe the best Southern Gothic that I've ever read since Beloved would be Sing, Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward, um, which is perfect. It's just a perfect novel and it will really wreck your day. It's so good. Um, and then Lee Mandelo has a book coming out with, I think, Tor.com called Summer Suns. And that's next summer or fall. I can't remember. And I got to read it early and it is absolutely on the same vibe that I'm on, which is sort of an upper South modern day Southern Gothic vibe. And it's, it's fantastic. And then other than that, obviously Gideon the Ninth, I would absolutely put in the Gothic column. Yeah, I, I will admit I have not read much uh, in the way of Gothic fiction myself, uh, but all of these sound fascinating and I'm definitely making notes. I think the only actual like sort of Southern Gothic I've read was another Orbit book, One of Us by Craig DeLuey. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, but it's on my list. Was it good? Yeah, it's oh, it's it's fantastic. Uh, in the same way that you said where like it's absolutely fantastic and it will wreck your day. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Southern <laughs> Gothics do that with for I think like really good reasons. Um, yes. Yeah, and then on romance, which will not wreck your day, and which I have had to like balance things out with, I have loved basically everything Courtney Milan has ever written. Uh, Tasha Suri for sort of sci-fi and romance, or like fantasy and romance crossover, and KJ Charles who I think has been writing for seven years and has already put out 22 books, which is outrageous. And thank God. And I'm always offended because I think there's this tiny, awful voice inside you that hears that. And is like, well, probably, you know, probably like the books aren't as complicated or as good as these books that are written slower. And then you read them and they're really complicated and good and have great prose. And you're like, oh, you just write those every two months. Fine, fine, whatever. Uh, so that's my recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, KJ Charles, I want to say it's called A Charm of Magpies. That's high on my TBR. Yeah, yeah. Did you read The Magpie Lord? I have not. Is that okay. like a prequel or the, the first, first book? That's the first one. Okay. The first one is The Magpie Lord, and it's super fun. It actually kind of exists in the gothic romance crossover because there is a giant moldering inherited house and like a family curse. So that you're good. 
perfect. Definitely gothic. A great yeah. combination of those two then. Yeah. Um, and I will say I am incredibly jealous of you being able to read these books that are coming out next fall, next summer. Uh, it seems one of the... Uh... Dude, it's the <laughs> best. It's so great. I've already read The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which is lovely. Oh, I want to read that. I read A Deadly Education, which is totally fascinating. And I think will come at a very interesting moment in the Harry Potter discussion and world. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just bragging now. <laughs> yeah. Although, I, at least I think uh, A Deadly Education, people will not have to wait long. I possibly already out by the time this releases because i think that's what oh, the yeah. end of this month end of september i think so yeah and i actually have uh not the full book but i did not know this was a thing but i have one of those little small like paperback samplers uh i think that's like the first two or three chapters of a deadly education so really they yeah, did that i that actually bringing this back this is relevant it was when i ordered my copy of hair of the night and i found some uh small bookstore that still did the sprayed edges uh, and they shipped it with a little teaser for uh, Naomi Novik's next book. Well, that is fascinating. I love that. Well, uh, one thing I always like to ask people to close out these episodes are, what's just something you're excited about right now? I mean, it's hard. There's a lot of things that I was excited about are canceled. And that's just been true for the entire year. But what I'm ex- most, what is like holding me together right now is that the Great British Baking Show is, there's a new season coming to Netflix, I think on the 25th. And that is like what my life is about. That is the level that I am on right now. I'm so excited for it. I've heard so many good things about that show. And yet I have not seen a single episode. I mean, you will think that you don't know anything about baking and then you'll watch it and you'll have a lot of opinions all of a sudden. You'll watch like one episode and be like, I don't know, that doesn't look, it doesn't really have the finish, does it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love those shows where uh, you suddenly become a very qualified critic of people who are way more talented than you. <laughs> yeah, you're like, that's underproof. That loaf just looks a little bit saggy, you know? <laughs> well, uh Alex, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you again for taking the time to chat. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful questions and it was a joy. You can find Alex E. Harrow on Twitter as Alex E. Harrow or at our website, alexeharrow.wixsite.com slash author. The Once and Future Witches is a magical book. It certainly casts a spell on me. It's a great seasonal read, though the messages within are timeless. And as always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.